Well, as Alan said earlier, my name is Wayne. I'm one of the pastors here. And today we are thinking about the death of Jesus. It has quite a different mood to it than Easter Sunday, doesn't it? On Sunday, we sing songs about the resurrection. They're full of joy. We have Easter eggs. We have chocolate. Um, Today is a lot more solemn because today we're thinking about the death of Jesus. But why stop there? This morning, I'd like us to think about our own death as well, because in some way, the two are connected. The key to us being ready to die and understanding our death is to understand what we've just heard about this morning in Jesus' death. It seems to be the fashion today to put together a bucket list, doesn't it? Ever since the movie came out, people have been putting bucket lists together of things to do before they die. There's even a bucket list website where you can go and upload your own bucket list and compare it to other people's bucket list. Four and a half million items have been uploaded to bucketlist.org. Can you guess what the top three bucket lists were as of this week? Number one, swim with the dolphins. Number two, learn a new language. Number three, see the northern lights. Wonder if they're on your bucket list. Now, I'm not sure what's going on with bucket lists. Is it a good thing? Are people actually facing the fact that they will die and so they're preparing for it? Or is it nothing to do with dying? Is it just the latest craze? Because even people in their 20s have bucket lists. For some people, it's just a list of fun things to do. And on they go. One of my uh, favourite people and worst people, uh, he's the hero and the anti-hero, is Steve Jobs, the creator of Apple. He died a few years ago. I read his biography. I've read it a couple of times. He was very scared of dying. In fact, early on, he said the reason that no Apple computer has a power off button is because every time he turns the power off, it makes him think of his own death. So he said to the engineers, we're not going to have an off button. We're going to have a drop-down menu which says shut down and the computer will only go to sleep. Now, I recently um, read his biography, like I said, and Steve Jobs found out that he was going to die. He had a warning. He had cancer. And he said it actually made him stop and confront his own death. He said, almost everything... All external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fell away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. And so when he was diagnosed with cancer and he saw his life clearly, he decided he didn't want to go out and do lots of things anymore. He didn't want to travel the world. He decided he would focus on two things the iPhone and the iPad. I kid you not. I wonder what your two things would be. I wonder what your one thing would be if your life was to be focused. This morning, I want us to see that no matter what is on your bucket list, no matter what things that you'd like to get done, there is one thing that we all must do to be ready to die. 
And to see what that one thing is, we're going to look at these three readings from Matthew's Gospel about how Jesus died, and we're going to see the connection. Now, the first passage was Matthew 27. And in Matthew 27, if you just think back to the first reading, Jesus was before Pilate. This is just hours before Jesus died, and he knew it. In fact, earlier on, he'd just been pleading with God, his father, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that if there was any other way, he would prefer not to go through with this. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. He's been denied by Peter. Everyone around him is deserting him and falling apart, and now he stands before Pilate, the governor who has the power to put him to death or to release him. And as you read it, Matthew wants us to see how calm and in control Jesus is here compared to everyone else, the crowd and Pilate around him, who are just falling apart. Let's pick it up in Matthew 27, verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Jesus is before Pilate, who has all the power to let him go or not, and he just gives that calm answer of truth with certainty. And as we read on, Jesus almost takes backstage now as we look at the turmoil that is going on for Pilate. Pilate has the power, but yet he's powerless. He gets more and more agitated. See, the problem is Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. So he tries to let Jesus go. Look at verse 17. When the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, who they knew to be um, a traitor, or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. It's not just Pilate that knows that Jesus is innocent. His wife knows it too. Look at verse 19. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat... His wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. The problem, though, is that the crowd have been worked up into a frenzy. Uh, Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And it comes to a climax when Pilate gives in He buckles under the pressure and he orders for Jesus to be executed. Now, do you see the contrast there? Jesus, the one whose life is on the line, he's in the background, he's almost calm. Yes, it is as you say. Pilate, the one with all the power, is falling apart. And so he does what he knows to be the wrong thing. And then he tries to escape the responsibility of it by washing his hands. Verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere... But that instead an uproar was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. Now that's ridiculous, isn't it? You can't just kill someone and then wash your hands as if that can remove your guilt. Sin goes deeper than that. This is murder. This is injustice. If you've done something wrong, can you just get out some water and wash your hands and God won't notice? 
Of course not. Our sin needs more than that to be washed away. And as we read on into that second passage, we start to see how that works. Here in the second passage, we see most clearly why it is that Jesus is facing his death so purposefully, and it's because there is a purpose to it. And its purpose has something to do with the washing away of sin. Now, Matthew highlights that, I think, by the words of the people who are taunting Jesus. Those words, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Now, to make sure that we notice it, Pilate repeats that phrase or a similar phrase three times. He wants us to notice it. It's first in verse 39. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. And then again in verse 41, this time it's from the mouths of different people, but it's the same kind of insult. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law and elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. And then just to make sure that we didn't miss it, verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. Matthew wants us to see the irony. By, the, by irony, I mean what they are saying is the exact opposite of what they mean or what, they, what they're saying turns out to actually backfire on them. See, they are saying this as an insult. They are saying, Jesus, you are so weak. You can't even save yourself. You saved others, you healed others, you made lame people walk, but if you are who you say you are, come down from the cross. Can't you even save yourself? They're making fun of Jesus' weakness. But in fact, it's the opposite. We know that because look at what Jesus said back in Matthew 26. If you've got a Bible there, just flip back one chapter. These words are so fresh, they're just from the chapter earlier. They should be still ringing in our heads if we were there or if we were reading Matthew's gospel. Matthew 26, 53, when they came to arrest Jesus, Jesus said, Do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? See, Jesus just has to say the word and he says there'll be 12 armies of angels rescuing him from this. Now, I'm sure that would have been very spectacular. I'm sure the crowd would have loved that. An army of angels coming down, lifting Jesus off the cross taking him to safety. But he can't do that. Not because he's too weak. It's because in his death, that's how he's saving others. It's the very act of giving his life that is saving others. So when they say he saved others, but he can't save himself, that is true. He can't save himself if he wants to save others. But it's not weakness that's holding him to the cross. It's love. 
because he is giving his life as a sacrifice. It's by his dying that he's saving. And look, we see that clearly in the third reading from Matthew. We see that that is what's happening. This is not just one man dying an accidental death. There's something far bigger going on here. There is something supernatural going on here, something beyond this world. See, Jesus is dying on the cross to take the penalty for our sin. This is a transaction between Jesus and us and God. He's taking the judgment of God that by rights should fall on us. Now, those things are explained in detail in other parts of the Bible. Uh, The Bible talks a lot about redemption and sacrifice and what was actually happening here. But here, as Jesus dies, it's not so much described, but it is actually happening. Right here in these events, Jesus is bearing the judgment of God in our place. That's why in verse 45, the sky turns dark for three hours. That in the Old Testament is a sign of the judgment of God. That's why Jesus prayed what he did in verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting from Psalm 22, which is a man under the judgment of God. Jesus is experiencing the judgment of God. Then we read on, and the temple of the curtain gets torn in two in verse 51. It's as if God has grabbed the temple and ripped it in two, Matthew says, from top to bottom. That's because the temple was where you used to go if you wanted to be made right with God through a sacrifice. But Jesus has now opened the way for us to come to God directly through his death. We don't need the temple anymore. That's been ripped up now and thrown in the bin. And then in verse 51 and 52, tombs start breaking open. Dead people start running around. Jesus isn't even raised back to life yet, but somehow his death is such a victory that already death itself is defeated. That's because even though Jesus has not been risen from the dead, he has already conquered sin, which means he's taken the sting out of death. See, Death only exists in this world because of our disobedience of God. If there was no sin, there would be no death. And kind of symbolically, these people who were lying in their graves under the power of death, their sin has been paid for. Did you notice? It's the holy ones of God. It's people who trust in God. And so they are now exploding out of their graves in a spectacular display that death's grip is broken because Jesus has taken away sin. Put it all together, the darkness, the temple curtain ripping, Psalm 22, tombs exploding. This isn't just an ordinary man dying. There is something beyond this world going on. It turns out that this is exactly what was predicted at Jesus' birth in the start of Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 1.21, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And he did. 
by his death. And that means if you are a follower of Jesus, you can look at death in the eye and you have nothing to fear. Because if you've come to Jesus and asked for forgiveness, your sin has been taken away by him on the cross. There's nothing to fear after death. And look, this isn't some pretend thing like Pilate washing his hands and just hoping somehow that this might get rid of what he's done wrong. No, we just saw it in the events that happened around Jesus' death. He actually took away sin. He took away God's judgment on us. Which means Good Friday, it's not just about Jesus' death. It's about our death. In a very real way. Because Jesus' death changes the way we face our death. There's only one thing that you need to have on your bucket list. It's not skydiving. It's not swimming with the dolphins. The one thing that you must do before you die is to make sure that you have made peace with God. That you have taken refuge in the death of Jesus. To make sure that Jesus is your king. Look, that's not to say that there aren't other important things that you need to do as well. Maybe there's people that you need to talk to. Maybe there's people you need to reconcile with. Maybe there's things you need to apologise for. But the one thing you must do before you die, is to make sure that you've asked God to forgive you through Jesus. And look, in some sense, that is really hard because you have to own up to the fact that you've done wrong before God. But in another sense, it could not be easier because Jesus has done everything that needs to be done and all you need to do is surrender and trust him. And if you've done that, you can look at death, stare it down, and have nothing to fear. If you've done that, you can die with no regrets because your sin is gone. It is paid for. That's why the Apostle Paul in Philippians says, For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Either way, life or death, it's great. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can die with no regrets. You can live with no regrets. Just living one day at a time, fully living for Jesus. Living in the security that the God who made you gave his son for you. Dying in the security that the God who made you gave his son for you. Living and dying in the security that he loved you when you were at your worst. And he will always love you. And in the big scheme of things, it doesn't matter what you did or didn't get around to in your life, what you succeeded at, what you failed at. What matters is living for Jesus, the Son of God who loved you and gave his life for you. Let's pray.
Father God, we do acknowledge that there is a deep sadness on Good Friday because it was the day that you lost your son, that you had to pour out your anger on him and punish him for what we've done wrong. And yet, Father, we want to thank you that that was the greatest demonstration of your love for us. And we thank you that Good Friday is good in that on that day our sins are washed away and we can know the security and comfort of knowing you. Father, there are so many people who don't yet know that and we pray that in your timing you would bring them to know Jesus. But Father, we pray that for all of us we might live with our lives in surrender to Jesus relying on his death, knowing that there's nothing we need to fear in life or in death. Amen.